This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. <sighs> I don't know guys, what to say. It's, yeah, I mean, are you guys ready for... The movie Seven. Oh man, it's uh, not a fun time. Although, well, fun is a relative word. It, it it's is. It's a fascinating time. It's an incredible movie. Having been one of my favorite movies growing up, and like it destroying me in so many ways, and like mm. delightful ways as a kid, then watching it now <laughs> and kind of putting it all back together, it's like, yeah, this fucking movie holds up. Oh yeah. Let's listen to the trailer. Let's do it. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. Now, we have ourselves a homicide. They're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth. Wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Have you ever seen anything like this? No. Seven. First of all, there was no seven N spelling <laughs> happening. Yeah, the seven didn't replace the V. Right. How, wow, what a delightfully non- I just I feel like a it, non-awesome trailer. Yeah, I mean, like it doesn't it doesn't prepare you at all for what I think is in store. No, no. Okay, so a couple of tidbits. Again, I love looking into just like the makings of mm. and how this movie could have been different in a bad way. So because right. you know a lot of times when we talk about movies, it's like, oh man, this had the potential to be great, and then like too many cooks in the and kitchen. Then, like, and Sylvester the Stallone was like, I want it to be comedy. And, yeah. yeah, this is the opposite of that, actually. Yeah, so yeah. just a little background. So Andrew Kevin Walker, he had enormous difficulty getting a studio to buy the rights to his script since he was a complete unknown. Mm -hmm. So he allegedly just like put together a list of agents and that represented writers that worked in the crime and thriller genres and just called everybody until he got a good response. That's a way That to do classic it. 90s mm -hmm. way of getting it. And he's apparently his primary influence for the screenplay came from his time in New York City while trying to be a screenwriter. I was oh. like, did you encounter... Did you murder people? Were there murderers <laughs> or just New York City? It's just the feel of the city makes <laughs> yeah, you feel like yeah. someone's murdering yeah, somebody. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro turned down the chance to direct because no as a romantic, he didn't subscribe to the script's dark view of the world. Interesting. At this time, David Fincher had not read a script for a year and a half since making Alien 3. He had said, I thought I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. Yeah, Alien 3, I don't think worked out for him. Yeah, which one was that? <laughs> that the, wasn't the Resurrection, one, right? No, Resurrection was the fourth one. Okay. Alien 3 is like the one where she's bald and like it's it's one of the more hated Alien movies. Okay. And I think that like Fincher disowned it and it's a whole right. complicated thing. So after thing. that, he was like, no way, Jose. But then mm -hmm. he got drawn to the screenplay because he thought 
thought this was like a connect the dots movie that delivers about inhumanity. It's psychologically violent. It implies so much, not about why you did it, but how you did it. Mm -hmm. And he found it to be like a meditation on evil rather than a police procedural. And then we found that like New Line Cinema made a big fucking mistake when they were sending <laughs> Fincher the script right. to, to like get his interest because the, the original ending with the head in the box was part of an earlier draft that producers wrote out because they're like, no, certainly. <laughs> we can't have something that fucked up at the end. Right. Like one of the producers rewrote it to become a race to save Tracy's life. Oof. Gwyneth Paltrow. That would have been terrible. Yeah. But they had accidentally sent David Fincher the original the screenplay. The version. And same with, with Brad Pitt. Like he basically demanded that unless they kept that original original ending that he wouldn't he would refuse to do it because the the movie that he had just finished doing Legends of the Fall was like a total cheese fest and uh, like had its emotional ending cut after negative feedback from test audiences and mm, stuff so he was like not on my watch not pal. again never again so, and luckily because could you imagine like what because one of the other endings was that you know, Somerset discovers that John Doe was raised by an abusive priest in a church and then like D yeah. John Doe kidnaps Mills and it becomes this whole, you know, traditionally kind of a right, film noir right. detective thing. Well, the thing that makes this movie so unique and actually great is the ending. Like, yeah. it's stylized in a unique way that like hadn't really been done before and it deserves credit for that, but really what elevates the movie is its ending. So without right. that, it's just a regular old detective story. Yeah. Just like many others that you've seen. Well, I would say it's a combination of like the grotesqueness of the murder scenes and kind right. of the creativity. Yeah. Like they're pretty memorable. Right. But then, and also Kevin Spacey. Like, Spacey. Him, I just remember those are the things that really, mm -hmm. well, it was the opening fucking sequence, which we'll get to in a second, yeah. that stuck with me as a kid. Obviously Brad Pitt, just in general. <laughs> but like, of the day. But throughout the movie, the sloth scene mm -hmm. destroyed in my life. I remember watching it with my old man at the time and we were, I was just like, oh, we've it's been scarred for days. Terrifying, yeah. Yeah, but like, okay, so a few fun casting tidbits that would have completely changed the game. Denzel Washington turned down the part to, that went to Brad Pitt, Mills. Interesting. He turned it down because he thought it was too dark, but of course later regretted it. He could have done great. Absolutely. Denzel would have done great in this movie. I mean, Denzel and Morgan Freeman or anybody else, because yeah, there's yeah. a series of people that turned this down because they were like, no, man. This, this is, is too fucked up? Yeah, Sylvester Stallone turned it down. He said it, they, everybody said it was a mistake once they saw screenings of the movie, though, right. of course. <laughs> now... Again, Brad Pitt decided to take the role because Legends of the Fall was like Cheese Fest, uh, Cheese Fest 1994, <laughs> and he, he I also wanted to go serious. Right, he also refused to take his shirt off throughout all of the movie seven because Good for him because yeah, Legends of the Fall had turned it in, turned him into a sex symbol, and so. He was like, okay, that's not going to be part of my thing. But of course, mm. he still won the MTV Movie Award for Most Desirable Male because you, you can't <laughs> quit Brad Pitt's face. It doesn't matter if your shirt's on or off, dude. You just, that bone structure is not. I love the idea that it's like, it's like, man, even without taking his shirt off, he still won. <laughs> I know. Even without completely like exploiting his sexuality <laughs> yeah, in order yeah. to sell movies. Initially, William Hurt was seen as being Somerset, but he went on that to be good. a police detective in Dark City. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so there was some overlap. In early stages of production, Al Pacino was considered. So this is for Somerset, the, the Morgan Freeman character. Mm -hmm. He turned it down. Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, they turned it down. So it's like, I'm, I'm getting what they were looking for. And like right. what I feel like with those actors, it still could have been awesome. But there was something about the like, you know, rookie cop vibe of Brad Pitt mm -hmm. with Morgan Freeman with the voice and the mm -hmm. calmness, the fucking metronome and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Michael Stipe from R.E.M. was considered as John Doe early on. Whoa. <laughs> but it makes sense though, right? The bald kind of looks like a junkie. I could totally see it. Right. And Val Kilmer turned it down. They the were, spacey role? Yes. Val Kilmer. Val fucking Kilmer as <sighs> like... Uh, only in a world this shitty could... He would have hammed it up too oh, yeah. much. It would have been, yeah, it would have been Batman forever, man. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Kevin Spacey was cast only two days before filming began. Can you imagine? Man. But he fucking nailed it. I really feel yeah. like that performance was nuts. It was. I thought it was cool that the the grittiness and the darkness of the movie was achieved through bleach bypass. They basically, they do not remove the silver in the film stock, which right. then like deepens the shadowy image. I'm not sure how that works or why, because I'm not a Well, we were talking maker, a while ago about like Polaroids and, and development studios and how right. like different layers of silver interact with the light and that is what creates the image and then you put a dye on the silver and then that like from the silver image becomes the actual image that you see. Right. Okay. That so makes sense. I guess if they leave the silver in, then it gives it a darker look. Which makes sense because at the time I was just like, oh, 90s film. Am <laughs> right, I right? right? It's just dark. There was something about the film yeah. stock of it the was, day. It was just such a dark and brooding movie. I just, I'm a huge David Fincher fan. Mm -hmm. Like, I love The Social Network, although I think that they should probably make a sequel to that soon. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Because I'm just real. I was talking about that with a friend of mine recently where he was like, man, they made that movie early, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true, because it was kind of like right when it was really, truly blowing up. Right, right. And it was like, the story of what Facebook is is not over. Oh, what it's become? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what <laughs> like... I'm saying. It's like, they should, there's a sequel there. Yeah. But... Fincher also, you know, he did Zodiac and many other serial killer things. Most recently, he has the Netflix show Mindhunter, mm -hmm. which if you haven't checked it out, I strongly recommend it. It's about this FBI in the 70s discovering what serial killers are. Ah. And so it's very interesting on that level. And I, I just wanted to give a recommendation for people who are interested. Right. You had expressed interest in looking into like the earliest serial killers. Yeah. I wound up with so many other things that I'll still hold that for right. another day. There's but plenty like, of time. Yeah. There, there's definitely the stories of Mindhunter. It's, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. These conversations that the FBI would have with serial killers and to understand their thinking and their thought process. Right. That is so interesting. Part One of the scenes in, in the first season is them being like, you know, it's like a, a sequence killer, right? Mm -hmm. Or like, there's another word for it. Right. I, we haven't landed on it yet. And then like, there's a thing, serial, right. serial killer. Yeah. That's the perfect name for it. What, like corn pops? No. <laughs> no. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do serial mom another time. Perfect. Remember that movie? <laughs> All right. I do want to briefly give some uh, homage to that opening sequence. It's a reworked version of Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Right. And I remember this got me really into Nine Inch Nails. I ended up buying the Downward Spiral after. Like This movie did a lot for me. Because I'm just, I was fascinated, but also disgusted. I was far mm. too young to see it. But here That's we are. That's Reznor knows how to make music. Yeah. Especially for a movie. Yeah. And the opening sequence actually won awards. And he was involved. I think he did music for the girl with the dragon tattoo and some other shit later I and won awards he, for that. The, he scored the social network. Like he right, right, right. continued to work with Fincher as a musician. It's almost like that Trent Reznor is a talented guy. It's a little bit like yeah. that. Let's listen to a little <laughs> bit of this opening sequence. Yeah. So, Whoa. intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
a lot going on in this so movie. Unique yeah, that, that yeah. The sounds that he's using, I feel like he's like using things that aren't instruments in there. Like I don't know. Well, and I also pointed out, I don't know why I didn't even. I was just like, whoa! It's like the movie started before the credits, and you're like, yeah, cold open, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> I think that was my first exposure to that, you know? Yeah. Because I always forget because this credit sequence is so like visceral for mm-hmm. me because all the images coupled with the sounds. But I like completely forget that it like starts and then it, there's the metronome that leads into the the yeah the and that sequence. start was actually we watched that in a screenwriting course I did in college oh, where wow. they were like explaining this is how you introduce a character efficiently through visual language yeah and it was like like showing Morgan Freeman you know meticulously laying his suit out on his on his right. bed with and the metronome the metronome and everything there's in something contrast okay. to I'm sorry go ahead. no no I just because I'm like making the connections as you're talking I was like. Yeah, it's the connection of like TikTok, everything's in order, and right. then like cut to Brad huh. Pitt, who's a mess and he can yeah. barely get his shirt on. Right. Uh, although he, he apparently does have his shirt on the whole yeah, time. Yeah, always. You get what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, so this movie is all full of the seven deadly sins, right? That's that the, it is. That's the drink, drink, drink for, for title. Drink for the title. <laughs> Now, okay, in Roman Catholicism, the seven deadly sins, also known as the capital vices or cardinal sins, are a list of the worst vices that cut a person off from God's grace. So I read some shit about the difference between mortal and venial sins, and there's like different classifications. So like, clearly it's like, all right, Catholics, you, your sins are so obsessed with people messing up. <laughs> right. But so within that, then these seven deadly sins are supposed to be like the worst ones, right? There's no list of the seven deadly sins as it appears in the Bible, but each of the sins is condemned at various points in the text. So there's a list of seven sins that God hates, and it's found in Proverbs. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Hmm. Now, in the later part of the 6th century CE, St. Gregory the Great introduced the seven deadly sins in his work, Moralia on Job. And the goal was to just illustrate for laypersons of the church the need to be mindful of capital sins. So it's different from the list found today, and his ranking of the sin seriousness was based on the degree that they offended against love. Hmm. So from least serious to most were lust, gluttony, sadness, avarice, anger, envy, and pride. Sadness was later replaced by sloth, and it was basically putting off or failing to do what God asks of you. Laziness. Exactly. So later, philosopher Thomas Aquinas contradicted the notion that the seriousness of the capital sins should be ranked. But the famous Dante Alighieri wrote three epic poems known collectively as the Divine Comedy Mm -hmm. titled Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, Mm -hmm. Inferno or Hell. So Dante recounts the visions he has in a dream in which he enters and descends into hell. And he's told by his guide that a soul's location in hell is based upon the sins that they commit when they are alive. So in each- These are the circles? Yeah, in Mm -hmm. each ring of hell, a specific punishment is doled out. I've never read Inferno and I feel like I want to. Actually, the whole Divine Comedy, I feel like would be Worth. I would like to say that I have read Inferno, yeah. but really the truth is I mostly kind of read it for the class. I did it enough to pass the test in right. English. And like, you know, because it's just part of that collective unconsciousness of like, we know right. the the basic tenets, right? right it's like right. it's a guy descending into hell. And, but uh, my understanding is like each circle gets more fucked up as you get exactly. you know, f- the further in, the, deep, the worse the sin. And it's a really interesting story from what I remember. Yeah, it, and it really is. But especially... 
it kind of whereas Thomas Aquinas was saying no they are all they should all, all be the same. yeah they should all be the same Dante is basically saying no because no, like layers as you descend lower and lower the punishments become worse and worse right. so he encounters these sins in the following order lust gluttony avarice wrath heresy violence blasphemy fraud and treachery so there's nine okay. at that time and mm. I feel like since then they've kind of you know, we just like simplify, simplify. <laughs> so there's some that, you know, you can incorporate into others. So the seven deadly sins are listed today as follows. And what I want us to do is sort of as we go kind of rank them, we're going to sort of figure okay. out like how we feel about them right. and also where some of the overlap can be. Mm-hmm. So let's start with lust or fornication or perversion. I, I like where this is listed because this is the least <laughs> problematic to me. As it should be. Right. I mean, every human being feels lust. Right. And it's, I mean, it specifically talks about unnatural desire with specifically with people outside of marriage and then mm-hmm. unnatural sexual appetites. So that's where it's like where mm-hmm. the dogma and the judgment and the mm-hmm. homophobia comes into play, mm-hmm. right? Because you're like, Okay, but you know, really is like coveting someone else's wife. But like, then that also encompasses other things that we still do find taboo and not okay. Right. Whether it's bestiality and other things. Like totally. All, like they everything falls under that category right. when you're that broad with it. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you don't know what the fuck you're talking about when you say unnatural. Because right. this is that's, also like that's the thing. It's like <laughs> what is unnatural? Yeah, this is all prior to anybody really knowing about like animal sexuality mm-hmm. and behavior and that kind of stuff. Anyway, but it's supposed to suppose Supposedly prevents clarity of thought and rational behavior. Dante, I think that's true. That's correct. I mean, we've all thought with. (laughs) You're not making your right choices. We've all had the morning after waking up and being like, ay, 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 what have I done? (laughs) Why did I choose that? Now, Dante's criterion was excessive love of others, which thereby detracted from the love due to God. So, of course, it's all in Mm. the context of God, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. fuck that, you know, right? But we can talk about it. We can (laughs) talk about it in the realm of like society and like just being a useful human being and whatnot. Mm Next one, and I feel like this isn't a good place, gluttony or waste over indulgence. This is misplaced sensuality. Not sure what that means, but just Mm. maliciously depriving others and destruction, especially for sport. So like hunting, I would say something like that. Oh, maybe it's not just about eating too much. Right. It's like it's wasting and knowing right it's like knowing that you know it's like being like i need to go to an all you can eat buffet every Uh day of the week because i'm I'm gonna load up my plate and then not finish the plate right yeah yeah, toss it out blah 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 dante explains it as excessive love of pleasure i think that there's some overlap here even with lust because it's like well lust might just be a gluttony of for sex yeah yeah the other way Now, greed or treachery or avarice, I think this is, I feel like this should be higher up. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but it's a strong desire to, to gain, especially in money or power, mm-hmm. disloyalty, deliberate betrayal, treason, that kind of thing. Thomas Aquinas says it is a sin against God, just as all mortal sins, inasmuch as man condemns things eternal for the sake of temporal things. Sort of like a, you can't take it with you, so don't get obsessed with material things mm-hmm. while you're here. Kind of. Yeah, it's, it sounds like chill out and treat people with a little more respect. Yeah, and it's also, you could say like, maybe some of the shit that we're experiencing even in this country is as a result of people's right. incessant greed and <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Greed was good in the 80s. I don't know if you knew <laughs> totally. that. Totally. Uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross uh, told us that, you know, we always be selling? always be greeting. That's always what... Always be <laughs> Closing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Closing. <laughs> okay, so sloth and or apathy or indifference, it's particularly condemned because others must work harder to make up for it. So it's like irresponsibility. Mm. It's not holding yourself accountable. It goes beyond just being like, I'm a couch potato. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I, when it comes to laziness, I, I think about this a lot because you can work really hard at being lazy. Right. Like, there's a Garfield comic that I always think about mm-hmm. where John is in the kitchen and he hears hammering and all sorts of construction work from the other room. He goes over and Garfield is laying on his bed and he's nailed the TV to the ceiling so that he can lay down and watch totally. it. And John's line is, I've never seen anybody work so hard at being so lazy. Right. And I used to do this kind of stuff all the time in middle school where I would like build systems of like strings that would go around my bedroom with like duct tape Mm. and stuff like that so that from my bed I could pull one string and turn off a light and I could pull another string and like close my door. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's all our definition of what that is because, right, there's like industries devoted to the the business of convenience. convenience. Yeah, yeah. Are you lazy, though, because right. you don't want to get up and turn off the light? Or are you being smart because you figured out an easier way to do that task? Right. It's the difference between working harder, not smarter. Right. Or working smarter, not harder. Right, rather, right, right, right. And j- literally just sitting around and not doing anything. Right. And I think you can kind of feel the difference. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, because I, I, I know I have a tendency like as somebody who was kind of raised by the TV in a lot of ways uh-huh. it's like I just got over the flu and for those three days where I was in bed I was like oh man this is the best thing that's ever happened to me just <laughs> watching movies and then I realized I'm like it's very easy to slip into yes. a pattern you know it's less like you always have to be a workhorse and it's more like what the fuck right. are you doing well that's the thing about the pattern is that if you once you fall into that pattern you can do one thing for an hour in your day and be like wow I was really productive today yeah and you're like well, you weren't really absolutely Absolutely. I mean, this we justify I've all the time. I've fallen into myself a but, lot. But then also, it's like you fake it till you make it. It's all what people think yeah. you're doing. You can yeah. make do a couple yeah. of social media posts and be like, "Hey, I got stuff going on." Yeah. You have no idea what I've been up to. It's but just, that's the perception of right. non laziness. Exactly. Yeah, I, you know, it's complicated. Right. So wrath is something that I think is probably the biggest danger to just like humanity because yeah. it's you know it's unrighteous feelings of hatred and anger, wishing to do evil or harm to others. It's the root of murder and assault. Mm-hmm. In Mill's case in the movie, his impatience or you know revenge outside of justice this vigilante justice that's what he was guilty of but it's also if you look deeper it's like denial of the truth to others or yourself it's Mm self-righteousness so there's some things that are wrapped in there that aren't just necessarily like violent right but you know Dante described it as love of justice perverted to revenge and spite yeah. And oftentimes, even with our like cult of public opinion and our or cult, of, I meant to say court of public opinion, but sometimes it is a cult <laughs> of public a opinion. Cult. It's that sort of thing where it's like, I'm righteous. So right. down with all of the, the upper ups and yeah. who cares if they die. You can justify all sorts of actions of like hatred towards your fellow man yeah. because you feel revenge in your heart. Yeah. yeah. And because you feel righteous in your anger. And that's something that we every human being struggles with. Like, yeah. I think that that's getting at the heart of why these exist in the first place is a way to try to better oneself. Yeah. Because there are these tendencies that we all fall into that we know are not helping us. Yeah. Both as a collective and as an individual. Yeah. Exactly. And, and being able to fight against that is the struggle of life. Also, like, owning the fact that this does happen to everybody. So these are very, like, human feelings right. to have. Right. So you're not alone. Mm-hmm. So that it's like the idea that, you know, you have to pay penance in hell. That's what I disagree with. But right. it's right. I do at least appreciate the acknowledgement that it's like, these seem to be some 
character traits that humans <laughs> tend to have. Mm-hmm. And moving on to the next one, this honestly I think is mine throughout my life. Envy or jealousy or malice. Mm. Grieving spite and resentment of material objects, accomplishments or character traits of others or wishing others to fail or come to harm. It's the root of theft and self-loathing. Dante defined this as love of one's own good perverted to a desire to deprive other men of theirs. And I appreciated it because I, I I feel like I'm a lot, lot better these days. But I think like having grown up a kid who w- lacked a lot, you know, like I grew up without a lot of money and I compared myself to people a lot and felt my own kind of self-loathing for being like poor or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that transferred over in, in some ways. But like everybody gets a little bit like, you know, you have that feeling where you're like, I want to feel better. And so sometimes does that mean that I don't want something good to happen for other people? Right, now, right. it's fighting those impulses and realizing like, absolutely not. And also your success does not involve other people's demise. It's not a zero-sum game. Exactly. It's like there's room enough for everybody to be successful. Yeah. And and you're, yeah, like a rising tide floats all boats. Totally. Whatever platitude you want to use, it's like we're all in this together and it's right. easy to forget that. And that's, envy is like kind of the part of us that's like forgetting that we're all to, a part of a whole. Right. Well, and it's also, it seems kind of counterintuitive when you, we also do live in such a competitive mm-hmm. capitalistic society. Totally. So it's like at the same time mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, a rising boat lifts all ships, or what a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah, it's also like, but you got to be the best. Like right. we just watched the, the Olympics. Biggest, the biggest ship still on top, exactly. even at the tide when the tide is high. Right. But I did like the Dante's referring to it as you know you're so obsessed with your own good that becomes perverted into wanting negative yeah. things for other people. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't ever want that to be how I feel. That's the thing. Like I think that envy and jealousy in a certain way is okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's so easily perverted into wanting something negative for somebody else in exchange for something good for you. Exactly. And that's where it goes really bad. The difference between motivation and like, you know, fucking Nancy Kerrigan getting her knee clubbed in. Exactly. Okay, finally, there's pride or vanity and narcissism, which again, I think kind of has to do with envy as well because it's a desire to be more important or attractive to others, failing to give credit due to others or excessive love of self. Mm -hmm. Dante defined it as love of self perverted to hatred and contempt for one's neighbors. So I think similarly, it's all like our egos that are turning us into loony birds that cause all of this. It's insecurity, it's that kind of shit. Yeah, it's about thinking about oneself rather than the The collective good. Exactly. And in the original classification, pride was considered to be the deadliest of all the sins because it relates directly to Christian philosophy and the story of Lucifer, as told in the Bible, because Lucifer was the highest angel in heaven, but he surrendered to the sin of pride and demanded that the other angels worship him. And this was a violation of God's will, which is why Lucifer and his followers were cast from heaven into hell. So that was like the beginning Satan's of sin. Satan's was, original sin. Was pride. Exactly. So, but other interpretations have viewed greed as the deadliest sin and that the mm. other deadly sins are just manifestations of that. Like lust is a greed for sex, gluttony, yeah. greed for self-indulgence, That sounds like, that sounds like, I'm I'm just like, yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely it. It's yeah. all about greed, really. Totally. Because Envy it's like, comes from greed and right. like everything is, is building you, out from greed. You're not happy with what you have. You mm-hmm. want something that you don't have. And sometimes that perverts you to, you could be so greedy that you become wrathful and right. kill somebody for it. You know, man, greed is at the heart of almost every human issue. Right. And it will. So, okay. So then 
the there's the seven holy virtues which are supposed to be like opposite of that and i even just looked at this i was like well if i'm an envious and jealous person Mm -hmm. the opposite of that is charity and giving so Mm -hmm. just being more giving the opposite of pride is humility wrath it's meekness Mm -hmm. sloth it's zeal or integrity (laughs) lust it's obviously chastity gluttony moderation and temperance and greed it's just again being generous and whatever Mm -hmm. what is your what is your sin I've definitely been guilty of pride. Uh-huh, sure. Uh, I feel you know, like we are all, yeah. Th- that's, but that's the thing is like, you know, I've definitely been guilty of gluttony. Mm-hmm. I've been envious. I've been, I'm guilty of all of them. I know. In one way or another. Yeah. Like, sloth, I would say, yeah. may be the number one for me. Yeah. Because it's that thing that I was talking about where you fall into these, the new normal of doing almost nothing, mm-hmm. and then you're you're like, wow, I did so much today. I went to the store and got groceries. Exactly. And it's like, that's not a thing. Right. You look around at how many people are doing so many things all at once, and you're like, how is this? I don't get it. Yeah. And I have pulled myself out of that at times, but it's a vicious cycle that I'm always like afraid that I'm going to fall back into yeah. again. Yeah, definitely. I think absolutely I've been guilty of all of these things. And mm-hmm. I think that goes to the conversation because right. even in the movie, John Doe's talking about like, we see a deadly sin on every street corner mm-hmm. and we do nothing. And we're like, well, that's why we need to change our definition of what is a deadly sin exactly. and what is just like human idiosyncrasies that we have to deal with and evolve to overcome. Because you can't, much like there's the seven holy virtues that counterbalance mm-hmm. the sins, it's like, Human beings are complicated people. And in the same day, you can be envious or prideful or whatever. And then Mm -hmm. that night be generous, full of charity mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, that just like, you know, it just speaks to the complexity of human beings. And I I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) So shut up, John Doe. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) So... In this movie, the killer forces a guy to eat himself to death. He That's keeps right. eating until he, he Stomach dies. Burst, yeah. And this is really hard to do, but you actually can kill yourself with overeating. You can overeat uh, in the obvious way, like until your arteries clog and heart disease kills you. We all know that. Like long term, mm-hmm. it's a long game. But it's also possible to eat so much that your stomach actually rips apart inside your body. I wouldn't imagine it was that difficult. I guess I thought it was going to be easier to do. Well, you can't force yourself to do it. That's the thing is like your body is fighting you uh, all every step of the way. Throwing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we all overeat at Thanksgiving. Hell yeah. You know, our brains do this thing where at a certain point you do not want to keep eating. Mm -hmm. You have to keep eating even though your brain is screaming at you to stop. I actually read about this thing called Prader-Willi syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is a disorder that causes feelings of constant ravenous hunger. And it's a genetic disorder that often leads to obesity and type 2 diabetes. There's no cure for it because it's like a missing chromosome. And that's not like a pituitary gland thing? No, this is like a genetics thing. And it's it's a terrible thing that afflicts some people in the world. Right. People with that condition have eaten until their stomach exploded. Jesus. So, okay. You have to eat at least five liters of food. Five liters, okay. is really hard to do. Because after about two liters of food or liquid, your body is going to start trying to throw it back up. Trying to save you from yourself. If you have too much food in you, your gag reflex will be activated. And if you ignore the nausea or don't have a gag reflex for some reason, you could keep eating. 
Oh, man. I've watched those competitive hot dog eating championships. I mean, first of all, like, I want to kill myself after watching it. But it's Just like... by watching Yeah. It. It's like soaking the, the <laughs> hot the dog water. bun in the water. You're like, this so is gross. so American right now. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah. Okay. But they they are really trying to not vomit while they're right, doing that. Right. That's the thing. And so, like, the gag reflex is one of the major things that's going to stop you from eating yourself to death. Your stomach right. can actually stretch to more than twice its normal size without tearing or breaking. Which, at that point, if you're if you're really if you're committed to doing this, the stomach is pushing on your lungs internally, which makes it really hard to breathe. Makes sense. At this point, it's just going to be damn near impossible to put another bite of food in your mouth. Right. But let's say you do it. One thing that might push your stomach to explode would be taking some Alka Seltzer, sure. which you would think would settle a stomach, but in this case causes gases to increase and explode the stomach. Oh, so when the explosion occurs. You may feel a sensation of release of pressure or giving way under stress. And it may actually feel a bit like a relief rather than an insane amount of pain. Oh, God. It will still really hurt. And you may even hear a muffled pop when it happens, which is a horrifying That's horrifying. The food and bile then leaks into your abdomen. And from there, it'll take a surprisingly long time to die. Because the food waste, which is toxic outside the stomach, can enter your bloodstream, cause major infections, and eventually kill you that way. Oh my goodness gracious. With quick surgery, you might survive, but like, once it's exploded, it's like... It's just in your body. In your body. Like, all over the place. Fuck. So the answer to the question, can you eat yourself to death, is it's really hard to do, but yes. Right. Even if someone has their gun to your head, it would still be really fucking hard to It do. may be impossible even then. Like, you have to do things like you have to not have a gag reflex. You have to be pushing yourself harder right. than... But I guess, like, if a gun is to your head, then maybe you would, you know, get into that state. That's all I'm saying is that gag reflex thing. Because I'm just like, dude, mm-hmm. yeah, even at Thanksgiving, there's times where I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I can't breathe. <laughs> yeah. My lungs are being pushed. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. I, the surprising thing is that you're not like dead instantly. It right. takes days and days. That it's not even the your... bursting of your stomach. It's yeah. the infection that ensues. <laughs> so right. not gross. So put down the fork. <laughs> put down the fork, as they say. <laughs> All right. So one of the delightful characters in this movie is the metronome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's my favorite my favorite character. Well, we had just been talking earlier how it's like, it's just a delightful juxtaposition to the chaos that ensues in the mm-hmm. movie because a metronome is... All order. Yeah, it's, it's all it's order. It's order in machine form. Yeah. Now, most people think of a metronome as that blocky pyramid-shaped thing with a pendulum that ticks. Mm-hmm. But the term metronome can also refer to any instrument used to keep tempo. So okay. even a little toe tap, a snap, <laughs> and a doo Snap, a doo Yeah. Now, it was patented in 1815 by Johann Nepomuk Malzell, who made little musical automatons. We covered oh, automatons on this, that's this cute. show. So those are little tiny robots that could play music. But incidentally, Beethoven and Malzell had connected when Beethoven was looking for help in dealing with his hearing loss, and Malzell made him several ear trumpets. We also oh, just covered that. Yeah, Did you know trumpets. that Beethoven was an ear trumpet wearer? Well, he, 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 yeah, he was 
he but went he mad deaf, deaf right yeah. yeah like i was about to say he was the guy who cut off his ear and i'm like no that's van, no, that's van gogh <laughs> no he no, something he lost... else with his ear right yeah he was deaf he he like he went on to lose his hearing of course he's remained genius right. the whole time he, but I anyway wonder, could he feel the vibrations in his fingers i on think that he piano? could feel it feel it feel it feel the vibration yeah so malzell and beethoven most likely also discussed the issue of timekeeping because mm. malzell had been working on metronomes at the time that he was making these ear trumpets mm. so malzell used an escapement, which is just the toothed wheel that makes a watch tick, to transfer power from a wound-up spring to a weighted pendulum. So each swing of the pendulum produced an audible tick, and then users could adjust a dial to control the tempo of the ticking. Mm -hmm. So even though musicians up until this point had already adopted standardized symbols to indicate time signature, key, dynamics, and note relationships, pretty soon after its invention, notable composers began including metronome markings, like beats-per-minute markings, basically, on their manuscripts. Okay. Think of a metronome as graph paper for the ears. I liked Ooh. this. Now, imposing a tempo grid over a piece of music, students are able to break down complex polyrhythms into smaller, more comprehensible sections. And then they can just like practice those at slower tempos and gradually increase the tempo as their technique improves. So the first metronomes were spring wound and much like old watches tended to keep time poorly as the springs lost tension. Mm -hmm. But of course, metronomes these days are far more sophisticated. Now, the general consensus seems that for musicians at least, a metronome can make an unpracticed musician sound like a robot, but it can also help a hardworking musician become more fluid in playing because you'll learn to like swing the beat without lowering the tempo. That makes sense. So now what the fuck was he using his, was his just for like meditation? It seemed like it was a very like, hypnosis kind of Yeah, feel. it seemed like a metaphor for his character yeah. more than anything at all. Like, or, yeah. Because I don't think he uses it to, he doesn't play the piano at any point. No, anymore, not right? at all. It's right. just, I think it's just what he does to relax. Yeah. It sounds, it seems very meditative. Yeah. The metronome is kind of represents something that like you know what happens next. Yeah, and it also kind of, it helps at least like differentiate between him and Mills who's mm-hmm. kind of just like fly off the Free fly flowing, off the handle yeah. like now throughout my journey my my learning journey <laughs> i also discovered on smithsonianmag.com an article called was Beethoven's metronome wrong? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Now, when musicians play classics, they often like to recreate the exact feel of a piece of music. But when playing Beethoven, a lot of musicians completely disregard the tempo markings on the originals because they say that it's absurdly fast and thus possibly wrong. Mm. Now, mathematic and musical detectives. Ooh, <laughs> I yeah. know. Yeah. All right. I want to look at a fucking musical detectives. <laughs> They've apparently discovered that Perhaps Beethoven's tempo was so strange because his metronome was broken. Crazily enough, after the ear trumpet thing, Malzell went on to invent more musical automatons like the famous mechanical Turk who played chess. Just straight up looks like a stereotypical Turk (laughs) playing. (laughs) (laughs) We'll provide links on our our Insta. Anyway, but so he continued to work on metronomes and around the same time he was trying to swindle Beethoven because I guess there was a, a debate between them over who owned the rights to a piece of music that Malzell suggested and Beethoven had composed. Hmm. They ended up going to court over it. So historians are thinking that around 1815 he might have sent Beethoven a metronome as a sign of forgiveness and peace. And but it was by, actually fucking him over? Maybe. This is where I'm a little bit like, I'm going to need to see that report, mathematic right. and musical detectives. Well, part of me is just thinking like, Beethoven had some really unique timing and tempos. Yeah. And, and especially I would think later in his career, he was like 
probably doing stuff that was just not what you would normally expect. Well, no, at least what they know is by 1817, Beethoven definitely had one of the metronomes. But this article is talking about how, like, fast forward to today, music historian Peter Stadlin has actually located Beethoven's metronome. But unfortunately, the heavy weight was gone, so he couldn't test its operation. So that's where the mathematicians come into play, because they looked at the mechanical properties of the double pendulum metronome to figure out basically which parts alter the device's performance the most, as well as the history of metronomes, the mathematics of their behavior, and the music of Beethoven. And they showed that in addition to him maybe not being comfortable with the device early on, Mm because it was a new technology, certain analysis shows that, first of all, a damaged double pendulum metronome could indeed yield tempi, which is the plural of tempo. Okay. Oh, boy. I didn't know that. I was like, this is a a typo, tempo. (laughs) Now, anyway, so they basically found that a damaged double pendulum metronome could yield these tempos consistent with Mm. Beethoven's markings. So he, you know, he was also famous for going through these like violent temper tantrums. So it's possible that he was like, "Ah!" (laughs) and whatever. Do you mean tempo tantrums? Bowing forever. Yes. Sorry. No, it was so necessary. And I've like part of the silence comes from me being like, how didn't you see it before, Italiano? <laughs> but anyway, so I feel like some of this is clearly speculation because it's like he could have just been a mad genius because yeah, it was like exactly. broken metronome, hearing loss, lead poisoning. He right. still was like a yeah. goddamn genius and yeah. wrote some of the best music of all of our of our days. Of of anybody's days. Of any days. Yeah, not our days specifically. Science. So this movie is all about detectives solving oh, yeah. crimes. Big time. And recently we were talking about the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to look into more about the Pinkertons. Why and, were we talking about them? Remember? Oh, you were talking about the Molly Maguires. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they... The, they were the, like found out by the Pinkertons. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And th- this is a whole... There's so much to the history of Pinkerton. Sure. Back in 1850, a Scotsman named Alan Pinkerton had immigrated to America he was a detective. He actually became the, one of the, if not the first detective in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And he wound up meeting a Chicago attorney in a local Masonic hall. Oh. Mm-hmm. And together they formed the Pinkerton Agency. Okay. It was a private security guard and detective agency that was hired for many reasons by many people over the years. Pinkerton became famous originally when he claimed to have foiled a plot to assassinate then-president-elect Abraham Lincoln. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is this long ago. And Abe Lincoln later hired Pinkerton agents for his personal security during the Civil War. Okay. So, and there's also, like, questions of whether or not Pinkerton actually, maybe he made up this whole thing totally. about this <laughs> assassination. Like, there's a lot of, every part of the story has two parts to it. Right, but at least we know that it's like a guy named Pinkerton who's like the head honcho. Yeah, and he was trusted by Abe, Honest Abe. Right. And so the Pinkerton agency started doing more than just security guard stuff and getting into private military contract work. At the height of its power, it was the largest private law enforcement organization in the world. They did a lot of work for Congress and the newly established Department of Justice. Basically, at the time, the DOJ didn't have the funds to create their own investigation unit, so they contracted the Pinkertons. Mm -hmm. The Pinkertons were hired to track down outlaws like Jesse James, the Reno Gang, and the Wild Bunch, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Wow. 
other Pinkertons were targeted by those outlaws because when banks had to transport money or other expensive merchandise from town to town, Pinkertons were hired to do that like armored trucks are now. Right. So they and their slogan was, we never sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So they were kind of like a do all yeah. Organization. It definitely felt seems very necessary. Right. You know? Especially at the time when there was no FBI or no right. no anything. They did a lot of noble work in the early days. I'm sure with a heavy dose of corruption in various right. places. But as time wore on, Pinkerton detectives started getting involved in more and more incidents where right. power struggles turned violent. Bribes and, oh, violence, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what I was bringing up before when you right. mentioned them. It was like breaking the up labor, unions and labor stuff. labor union mm-hmm. stuff. So a federal law was passed called the Anti-Pinkerton Act in 1893, which basically stated outright that if you work for Pinkerton, you cannot work for the government. Wow. So this put an end to the DOJ's use of of the Pinkertons Mm -hmm. and kind of changed what they... The way the government saw them, at least. Was this as a result of some of the corruption charges? Well, no, actually. Oh. This was done because of a fear that the 2,000 Pinkerton detectives and more than 30,000 that they had in reserves could literally be hired as a private army. And apparently the U.S. Army at the time had fewer people. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. Right? Such early days. So they were like, no private armies. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a thing that we want. Totally. They didn't want to imbue these people with a private company with that kind of power. Exactly. So in the late 1800s, various companies that have their own power start dealing with unionizing workers, Mm. striking workers, all sorts of stuff like that are are going on, and they turn to the Pinkertons. In 1892, there was a huge strike called the Homestead Strike. This is how I learned about them, because I was like, I swear it had something to do. (laughs) Okay, here we go. So Carnegie Steel called 200 Pinkerton detectives in to protect the mill and the strike breakers, Somewhere in the process, people opened fire, 16 people were killed, and 23 others were wounded. To restore order, the Pennsylvania governor had to call out the Pennsylvania militia to to quell what was going on. Right. Other times, they had infiltrated unions. They kept strikers and suspected unions, unionists out of factories. Right. They intimidated workers and more. They they started, like, being hired hands for... To intimidate people. By, and, like, and, these, like, big steel companies and right. oil companies and that kind of a thing. One interesting tidbit is that they may have inspired the term private eye mm-hmm. because their logo, which was the words Pinkerton National Detective Agency surrounding a single eye made the whole thing look like an eyeball. Okay. So that was like all over the place, this logo of the Pinkertons, and that was the private eye. Fascinating. They also hired the first ever female detective in 1856. That's pretty legit. Mm Mm-hmm. And they made the one of the first ever criminal databases. Mm-hmm. Like they had this thing that they called the Rogues Gallery, which mm-hmm. is the first example of mugshots, mugshots of various criminals and stuff. The Pinkerton Agency still exists today. Is really mm-hmm. okay. They operate as Pinkerton Consulting and Investigations Incorporated, which is a division of a Swedish security company called Securitas AB. Uh-huh. I don't know how many pinks, as people who hated them called them, (laughs) are still actually operating, but it does still exist in some form today. I mean, it's definitely fascinating in terms of seeing like the precedent for needing something like that, seeing the time that it could have 
that it that it seemed to be doing what it meant to do. Right. And then how it very quickly becomes corrupted exactly. and overrun by mm-hmm. greed, as we talked as about we've before. As we've talked about, yeah. Because really, ultimately, that's what it is, right? It's private companies mm-hmm. trying to protect their interest. So they bring in these bozos that right. the government doesn't want anything to do with anymore. But the realization of like the government being like, we should be in control of the FBI. Yeah. But private you know, militias are still a thing that we use all over the world. Right. Like, Isn't the National... What is the National Guard? The National Guard is our own That's army. us, but, though. Yeah, I mean, we used a lot of private military contractors in Iraq. Right. If only our forefathers had <laughs> thought about that. Right. <laughs> well, I also want to say, I went to the Pinkerton-owned website, mm-hmm. which has a history of the Pinkertons. And it's like this extensive timeline of the company going from like, Alan Pinkerton coming to America through to today, and there are some glaring things missing from it. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Because in the late 1800s, like, according to their timeline, the Pinkerton agency was fighting outlaws and saving presidents, and then it inher- was inherited by a younger Pinkerton right. in the early 1900s. Nothing else happened. And noth- they literally don't mention labor union stuff. They don't mention at all, like, even their complicated history. Yeah. At one point, they mentioned that Ohio outlawed their existence because of how big their militia was. Right. But, like, they don't actually talk anything about this... Discussion as to why. Well, certainly not the homestead strike. Right. Never is mentioned. Right. (laughs) Like... Isn't that wild? Well, and it's funny you say that because I remember, like... After all these years of not being in high school mm-hmm. American history right, class, right, and yet right. when you said Pinkerton, the first thing I said, I was like, weren't they like union busters? Yeah, I think yeah, they were bad yeah, guys. Yeah. So I'm like, you can't remove that from history, y'all. I just think that private armies are a scary thing that, yeah, we probably shouldn't allow, but maybe we shouldn't allow government armies. I don't fucking know. Right. Ugh. In general. It gets out of hand. Humans are sinful. Humans are full of sin. <laughs> Science. There's a lot of fun blacklight forensics in this movie. Mm-hmm. Some fingerprinting and whatnot. Because oh, yeah. the, they, doesn't the sloth guy has his hand that's used? Like John Doe cuts off his hand and then uses his hand to write thing. The help right. me remember behind the yeah, painting and, that and the was, whatnot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. when they brought in the the, the blacklight and, and the blue lights and all sorts of sperm. Yeah. Or now, whatever it was, blood, I guess. <laughs> we will get to that, mister. Nice. Now, over many decades, visible light sources were used during most searches of crime scenes. This is white light. Mm-hmm. But in the 1970s, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the Mounties, pioneered mm. the use of argon ion la- lasers. But they were super expensive and cumbersome, so it was impractical for use at crime scenes and was basically meant for just the crime lab. Mm-hmm. Now, portable lasers began to appear in the marketplace in the 80s, but they were limited to mostly a single color of light. The very first alternate light source, or ALS, that was used by law enforcement was a long wave ultraviolet light, or a UV light, or a woods light, or a black light, mm-hmm. which is what we know it as. Now, well, in Why the, is it called that? <laughs> except, it's not completely black. It's a little purple. <laughs> yeah. And so in the mid-80s is when law enforcement became really interested in ALS. Then in the 90s, the like high-intensity incandescent lamps slowly revolutionized the whole thing, and obviously since then, it's become even more crazy with Into LEDs. Every college dorm room that you can find. Everybody can do it. <laughs> 
So an easy way to remember what an alternate light source is would be to describe it as any device that emits any color except white light. So let's do a little light refresher, shall mm, we? Yes, please. So light travels in waves just like radio and TV signals, and light waves are part of the electromagnetic spectrum. When you look at a chart depicting the electromagnetic spectrum, we see that the longest wavelengths are apparent in electrical power and telephone signals, and at the other end of the spectrum, we find gamma rays, and beyond them are X-rays. So toward the longer wavelengths in between ultraviolet light and infrared are the visible light frequencies of violet, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. Mm -hmm. So when all of these visible light bands combined, the result we see is white light. White light, yeah. The most important thing to remember is that the different visible light colors can be used to cause a phenomenon known as fluorescence. Mm -hmm. So what is fluorescence? Do you know? Uh, Have you heard of it before? Apparently not. Yeah, I mean, I know what I had... fluorescent lights are. Right. I know like... what makes them different from incandescent lights, but like, I don't. But like, like you've never heard of it. Only in the... terms of my experience with it. Right. I don't know what. You haven't necessarily heard like an object being fluorescent or right, like the fluorescence right. of an object, right? Right. So the fluorescence of an object is based on the wavelengths of light it absorbs and the wavelengths of light it emits after absorbing that light. Okay. So we tend to notice it most when the source light is low in the visible spectrum, like a black light, mm -hmm. coupled with fluorescent material that emits strongly in the visible spectrum, like a highlighter pen or a black light poster. Okay. So most fluorescent minerals require an ultraviolet source wavelength that is short between 250 and 300 nanometers, which is dangerous to our eyes and skin and requires the use of UV filter glasses to safely use. So just think about it. There's like a bunch of everyday shit that if you put under a black light, you'll see it glow. Mm -hmm. And what happens is they absorb the ultraviolet light and then re-emit it almost instantaneously. So some of the energy gets lost in the process. So the emitted light has a longer wavelength than the absorbed radiation, which makes it seem like it's glowing. Like, okay. that's what gives it that glowing look. Now, why does this happen to dandruff? <laughs> Which um, is always the worst kind of thing. That's a really good question. I'm not sure exactly why. Because, well, I mean, at least I know that fluorescent molecules tend to have rigid structures and delocalized electrons. I don't know what the fuck that is. Okay, okay. But yeah. I mean, just even think about it. There's like the quinine and tonic water under a under a black light uh -huh. glows blue. That's why a lot of bars have black lights to make their drinks look pretty. Uh -huh. Chlorophyll makes plants green, but it fluoresces a blood red color. The emperor scorpion normally is dark brown or black, but it glows a bright blue green when exposed to black light. Hmm. Tooth whiteners, toothpaste, they these glow blue because they don't want your teeth to look yellow. Because you know how like your yellow, your teeth look yellow in a black light? Right, right. Apparently banana spots glow under UV light. Wow. It's pretty fucking cool. That's cool. So yeah, like, and then like jellyfish that, some that glow because of bioluminescence, their mm -hmm. own shit, then mm -hmm. some of them, if you put them under a UV light, you get this. So. From fluorescence. Yeah. Is that, that would be a correct use of the term? Yeah. Nice. So you have bioluminescence, fluorescence, all sorts of essences. All every essence. Yeah. Essence now, of emerald. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Bam. Now, <laughs> whatever happened to Emerald? Let's do a quick Google search of him. He's later. still doing amazing restaurants. Like I go oh, to good. new places of his. Perfect. Yeah, he's yeah, doing he's it. He's great. He's making food. I don't know that he's like has an active TV show, but he's making food out there. Now, bringing it back to crime scenes, uh, many body fluids contain fluorescent mo yes, molecules. All sorts of body fluids. That's right. The most common uses for ALS at crime scenes are locating physiological fluids like saliva, urine, and semen. Mm. UV light works best on these substances, but research found that the blue range of light was the most effective in producing fluorescence in many substances. Like bone fragments and teeth are visible using both UV and blue light. Certain okay. narcotics like crack cocaine will fluoresce under blue light. Interesting. So, yeah, and then what's crazy is to read about some of the processes because, like, fluorescence is weak 
when you when you see these objects, so mm. to visualize it, the crime scene technician has to use filtration that blocks the visible light but passes the fluorescence. Oh. Basically meaning that if the visible light beam is blue light, the filter has to be orange. Okay. So this blocks the blue light but passes the fluorescence. Man, this shit's Technology. so complicated. Yeah, like the understanding that people have of like the way light works in order to right. have it show up on a camera in ways that like exactly. we were talking about silver on film before, and I'm like, I kind of wrap my head around that, but there's just like right the the fact that colors have their opposites, and there's like ways right. of like filtering out this part of the lights but like, and it's and it's all based on what our dumb eyes can see right you know really like that's all that it is it's like the evidence is there whether we see it or not it's right. just about making it so that we can see it so yeah because and then to think about the difference between blue light which i just described having to you know block it with orange or whatever mm. and then uv light which on the other hand is invisible but produces visible fluorescence from certain objects like we were just talking about before. So mm -hmm. like you don't need a filtration for that, but you do need to wear eye protection right. in order to do that. Now, on a lot of cop shows, they show crime scenes that use blue light to search for blood, mm -hmm. but blood doesn't fluoresce by applying UV or visible blue light. Really? It can be made to luminesce by spraying certain chemicals like luminol on the surfaces uh -huh. and adding blue light is not necessary. So I feel like I'm not quite sure in the movie they were doing some sequence of this. Right. There was some spraying and some who's it's and what's it's. I definitely it's. know that from CSI. Right. Like exactly. that they would spray stuff and then look at it under a light. Right. But of course, because this show just leads us to so many lovely rabbit holes of knowledge, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I found a man's personal blog, it would appear, called <laughs> The Fluorescence of Semen. <laughs> and I was like, personal sign me blog, up. Yeah. Gotta go. <laughs> Subscribe now. Right. So he begins this thing by saying, after hearing in the news that a black light can be used at a motel to check for semen stains on sheets and carpets, I began experimenting with that concept to see if it's at all useful. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> I began experimenting with that concept to ruin my own life. I know. I th to gonna, learn things I never wanted right, to know. I'm going to have to, for science, jerk off all weekend yeah. in my hotel room by myself. Let me find out how many people are guilty of lust. <laughs> right. So he, he mentioned that the source light wavelength that causes fluorescence of semen is reported to be between 415 and 490 nanometers, which is not UV at all, but is in the visible violet blue dark green part of the spectrum. So hmm. that's first thing. Okay. Another thing to consider is his approach. <laughs> now, since the light sources used in forensics are priced so highly, he experimented with lower cost solutions. Uh -huh. And we're talking blue blocker sunglasses and a light source he already had. <laughs> As I read these conclusions, this is like, I wanted to share this because I was just like, I want to... I want to party with this guy. I want to like, meet who this is guy, it? yeah. Because he's like, here are my conclusions. Semen is not particularly fluorescent. You will definitely not find semen using a regular blacklight. Blacklight is useful for finding traces of soda pop, urine, vomit. The blue light with orange goggles is the best overall for finding urine and such, as it really pops out brightly. <laughs> and then this is where it starts to get like, oh, I see where you're going, guy. He's uh -huh. like... Cocaine having a purity of at least 87% fluoresces clearly when illuminated with UV light. I certainly checked it a hundred right. times. Yeah, some amphetamine having a purity of 78% are clearly fluorescent. Some MDMA tablets, you know, and he goes into yeah. this whole thing. He's like, some Crystal meth also yeah. goes this way. And then, yeah. <laughs> so I just love that this guy by himself, he's like, I'm going to get these fucking blue blockers yeah. and some orange goggles. Anyway, but one thing that I did pull away from his article is to remind us all, because we've clearly all been like, oh, you don't want to go into a hotel room with a black light, right, right, right. is to remind us that fluorescence only helps to locate samples of semen, not to identify a particular substance. Right. If you know what you're dealing with the semen, that's one thing, but it's like... 
you know, you have to go through the process of like chemical and microscopic analysis right. to know because apparently soda pop, urine, vomit, all sorts of crazy substances right. fluoresce. It's not, it's just, it looks... Just because you take the black light there and you don't see anything doesn't mean there ain't no semen there. Right. <laughs> What I'm saying is when you put the black light over your bed covers uh-huh. and you just see stains after stains after stains. That's probably soda. Along with semen <laughs> and vomit. And, probably and a little poo. A little <laughs> bit of poo. <laughs> so that's it's black lights. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any favorite lines? I actually did not write anything down, but I would say the entire final monologue from Kevin Spacey is my favorite line. It's really good. Is that where he says, in order to get somebody's attention now, you have to hit them with a sledgehammer? Yeah, you can't just poke them on the shoulder anymore. Right. I remember even at the t- at the time that I saw this movie in 95 or thereafter, it's like I thought that he was a sicko, but I at least... I didn't appreciate what he was doing, but I at least understood what the fuck he was talking about. In the same way that like the agent in the matrix, you're like, I hate that you're saying this about humans, but like, I agree with you. We are parasites and viruses and whatever. Something that I thought throughout the movie was I was like, nobody is guiltier of pride than this guy. Or wrath or. Or, Yeah. yeah. Of all of them. Yeah. I mean, uh, like maybe not gluttony, but like definitely He was pretty emaciated, that guy. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely. It's like anytime you are murdered somebody and certainly right. in the most sadistic albeit creative ways mm-hmm. you're a fucking hypocrite you right. asshole yeah. that i mean he even gets himself set up to be shot by brad pitt because he's like i envy you right i wanted to play mr right. husband or whatever and like wanted to play nice and then he ended up cutting off fucking gwyneth paltrow's head right so i mean inherent it, there's just a hypocrisy but it's also like as he's when they're in the car spacey's saying stuff like nobody's ever going to forget what I've done. What right. I've done is the most incredible thing that anybody's ever done. Excellent Like point. that kind of pride, right. it, which I, I can't remember if Brad Pitt's points out specifically, but he kind of lightly makes that point yeah. to Spacey. And Spacey's like, just because I'm prideful doesn't mean that I'm not doing the right thing. I mean, it just tells you the, the volatility of the argument, right. which is that these are absolutely human things. Mm-hmm. Nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. And to suggest that you're like, well, you're guilty of that sin today. And so therefore, I, I don't know. I just like, you get off easy, John Doe. You get a shot yeah. to the head. Right. You don't get the torture that all of the other people experience. Well, that was why it's like you're so rooting for Brad Pitt to not shoot him in the head. Right. You know, in that moment of, what's in the box? I know. What's in the box? <laughs> Dude, I know, you know that people shit on that scene. I think it's great. Well, they, they don't shit on the scene. They love the scene, but like I have oftentimes heard people just at least clown on Brad Pitt for being like, come on, what's in the box? You bo- can clown oh, on God. it, but I, I was totally with him in the moment because at one point, it, this is like, like when he realizes what he's up against, like when he realizes Spacey's actual plan, he just has the this moment of like, oh, Fuck. Right. Fuck me. Fuck. Right. I mean, that's a good point. Like, he's just pissed. Because what would you do? Like, honestly, what would anybody, like, as an actor or as a human in that that moment? Because, right. you know, people have an issue with the fact that he's just like, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> I think it's, it's but I'm the like, perfect reaction. Right. Like, this is a, this, it's him you being are like, fucked I either am, way. He's like, I have lost because yeah. I know I'm going to kill this guy. Right. And I know that's not the right thing, but he, I'm still going to, I have to do it. He also knows that his wife has been murdered and decapitated. Oh, yeah. It's like, there's I, no, there's no way that you're just gonna be like oh man right (laughs) yeah yikerones apparently so the the gluttony guy the actor which i 
guess I thought it was just like a body, but it was an actor that was in there. He in was the, in a bunch of like prosthetics and mm-hmm. stuff. And I guess on the DVD commentary, David Fincher was saying that he felt so bad that he had to wear all of the hot prosthetics oh, that yeah. to compensate, he made his cadaver very well endowed. I don't know if you remember that on the table, his big giant <laughs> dead dick. Like, like- Sorry you had to go through all this, but like one thing that everybody yeah. is going to appreciate is you got How, a big dick. Yeah, that your your dead corpse has a big dick. What? I, I read that the makeup for the sloth victim took over 14 hours, which makes sense. I oh, uh, still yeah. that <sighs> knife dildo is something that haunts me to my very That's core. That's the most disturbing right. to me. But I yeah. think like being well, certainly being fe- being anybody, but being female, I was I like I was like whoa, I, that's just crazy. But I felt like they they didn't take a lot of time. There was no, the shot no. on the scene and they left. Whereas the sloth scene where you're going in there and you see him. Oh, and I also read none of those fucking actors knew that he was gonna come alive again. Oh yeah. They thought that he was just there, and so when he started coughing, that was you know it's a sort of alien pop out yeah, of the chest. Yeah, we talked about that thing. in the moment in Alien. Yeah, like where. And- and, and that scream is so real right. from the actress. And how do we feel? How did we decide we felt about that? It's like, I'm so interested in the authentic experience, but like... We've talked about how like, it's a line to walk. Yeah. And like, we know that like Stanley Kubrick maybe stepped over the line in yeah. The Shining. And you know, there's True. been like examples of that. But as has also been said, pain is temporary, film is forever. Right. It was also, they got startled. It's not right, like, right. you know, it's not like, like fucking think, Last Tango in Paris right, right. with the butter and shit. Or I like, think we've talked about it in like, in The Abyss, <laughs> like the things that Ed Harris had to go through and like the kind of extreme drowning potential scenarios. All of them had to go through, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a degree to which if it doesn't have to be that way, don't do it that way. Like we were just talking about in the beach, filming on the beach and destroying the beach. It's like there's a way to do it and not destroy it. Right. But I do think that like startling your actors once in a while to get a genuine startled emotion is not... A terrible thing, right? I think in the realm of like a horror thriller, mm-hmm. it's right. it's got to be part of the signing up process. Right. You know, I think about like the Blair Witch Project, right. which might actually be a fun one to do. That would incidentally. be an interesting potentially. But all of those guys, they were getting scared left, right, and sideways, right, right. and they were all very real reactions at some points. Yeah, and so it's a line that you draw. Yeah, and it's what you sign up for, and it's just not being exploited, I guess. Mm-hmm. Finally, 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 for me, the word "fuck" and its derivatives are said discernible seventy four times throughout the movie, mostly by Brad Pitt. Holy. Shit, that's so many times. Fuck, what? 74. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, who was like, one, I'm going to tack this down. Well, but 74 reminds- times, that seems like a lot. That's a lot. I guess it is. It reminds me of in that South Park episode where they finally said shit uncensored on TV. Oh, yeah. And that they was had the one. shit counter, and they it goes up to like 200 or more. Right. <laughs> but, well, it's so easy because. But that's also like specifically intended for that. Like, that's to expose that. Right. Well, yeah, that was, that was a game. Whereas the, but it's also, it's like, fuck that fucking fuck. It's like they, you mm-hmm, go through mm-hmm. fucks like crazy, but yeah. I just hadn't thought about <laughs> 74 with like how l- truly like little dialogue there is. You're just right, sort of right. like, that's a lot of fucks. That's a lot of fucks. Well, I love this movie. This is great. insane movie. Yeah. Well, Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joya Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And you'll find us here next week doing a movie that I enjoyed at the time when it came out when I was 12 and now I hate hate called hate hate Idle Hands no it's a classic news. don't watch it but listen to the episode we're gonna have a lot of really interesting right. conversations I think it's gonna be a cathartic experience talking about it yeah I'm gonna get a lot off my chest it's fucking I I enjoyed it Sawa oh, boy 
Anyway, we'll you're going to hear that next week. <laughs> see you guys later. Bye. Bye.